Hello and welcome to the second episode in the podcast series, Unsettled Monuments, Unsettling Heritage, a set of conversations hosted by the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. Our program today is made possible by the generous support of the Cornell Task Force for the Humanities and Arts, known as CIVIC, and its initiative in the humanities and public life. My name is Adam Smith. I'm the director of Cornell's Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies and professor in the Department of Anthropology. Today, we are very pleased to welcome to our conversation, Dr. Trinidad Rico. Dr. Rico is Associate Professor in the Department of Art History at Rutgers University and Director of Cultural Heritage and Preservation Studies. Today, she joins us from the West Coast, where she is spending the year as a fellow at the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University, a return to the institution that awarded her her PhD in 2011. Dr. Rico's work explores the construction of cultural heritage regimes across the industries, states, and civil society discourses that intervene in shaping the formalization and memorialization of the past. Her 2016 book, Constructing Deconstruction, Heritage Narratives in the Tsunami City, examined heritage practices in the aftermath of a devastating tidal wave that swamped Banda Aceh and Indonesia in 2004. Dr. Rico attends to the post-destruction narratives that emerged as the waters receded, documenting the emergence of local heritage places, practices, and debates quite distinct from the globalized forms that circulate within traditional spheres of international heritage production. Dr. Rico has also authored numerous contributions that seek to clear, clearly identify alternative forms of heritage production embedded in local communities. Her work of late has shifted to the state of Qatar, where she is examining the tensions between cultural heritage preservation and religious practices in the Muslim world. And it is this work that we will be discussing with her today. In preparation for our conversation, our faculty panel has considered three recent pieces of Dr. Rico's work on this project. The first from 2017 is entitled Expertise in Heritage Ethics in the Middle East, published in the International Journal of Middle East Studies. The second, also from 2017, appeared in the Journal of Arabian Studies and is entitled Searching for Islam in Heritage Practices and Debates. Lastly, we were also pleased to engage with Dr. Rico's 2019 piece in the journal Material Religion, entitled Islam, Heritage, and Preservation, an Untidy Tradition. In today's conversation, we will roam widely across these works and undoubtedly touch on other pieces of Dr. Rico's contributions to critical heritage studies. I am joined in this discussion by five colleagues from the Cornell faculty, and they will introduce themselves in turn as the conversation unfolds. But to begin, I want to first welcome Dr. Rico and thank her for being with us here today. Welcome. Thank you, Adam. So as a way for us to get started, I wonder if I can ask you to give us a brief overview of your new project to help orient the listener to your research questions, your conceptual concerns, and your field sites. Absolutely, thank you. Um, just to try to draw some kind of um, direct connection between my project in Indonesia and this current project. As I was wrapping up my work in the uh, what was the Sultanate of Aceh in Sumatra, so the, the westernmost tip of the island, which uh, has self-denominated a Sultanate throughout most of its history, um, I became very attuned to the fact that there wasn't a lot of literature on heritage and Islam outside of the broad framework of um, terrorism, right, as an as a analytical tool. So my second project, which I started immediately after in 2011, when I moved to the Arabian Peninsula for five years, uh, basically centered on 
trying to find the contours of that absence, right? So both historically, epistemologically, discursively, politically, why do we have uh, an emerging conversation about the way heritage discourses get pulled into all these other quote unquote peripheries from its origin in a Western or, or Euro-American territory? Why do we have so much detail about some regions and not about other regions, right? Like, what does it mean to do this? So that's the genesis of this second project of mine, which I've been working on for you know nine years now. And I'm at the stage where I'm, I'm putting it into, into a, a coherent book form of sorts. Um, yeah, so that's that's basically the the background and where it's heading into into a fancy book. Hi, this is Ben Anderson. I teach art history here at Cornell. Uh, thank you for that introduction, Trinidad, into the the origins of this current project. And I wonder if we could uh, go a little bit deeper into the specific Qatari context of the work that you did. You mentioned that this came out of a move um, where you resided in the Arabian Peninsula for five years. So that's the basis of the fieldwork. Most of the material that you've written about this has to do specifically with the state of Qatar. Um, and I wonder if you could reflect a little bit about the work that you were doing there. As I understand, you were a heritage professional um, in Qatar. That's the basis of a lot of the work that you've written recently. Um, and of course, the Qatari state is a very, in terms of Islam, is a very broad construct, um, is a very specific national context. Um, it's a nation that has put tremendous amounts of you know, resources into uh, communications and media, obviously. You know, Al Jazeera, most famously, is the uh, state-run um, channel of the Qatari state but also uh, lots of money into heritage projects, let's say, for example, um, outside of the Arabian Peninsula in the Balkans, for example, the construction of um, and restoration of religious sites um, in, in other parts of the world. So I wonder if we could move uh, and hope to come back to Islam as a broad con uh, context, but first move to the very specific national context of, of Qatar and how you've experienced heritage unfold as a discourse specifically within that. Thank you, that's a great question and a great reminder to start talking about why one works in a specific site. Um, so like many, I don't know what your particular histories of landing in a site have been, but there's a, a mix of an accidental and an intentional um, trajectory there. So it, it, it was a little bit accidental to move there, but very intentional in that I thought part of the um, histories that I wanted to tell about heritage narratives were, were going to be better told in a more quote unquote pure Muslim society, right? Where it's, it's, it's much more intentionally deployed as as an ontology. Um, the really great thing about Qatar, as you've already, you've already kind of mentioned it, is that it has slowly, but very intentionally taken on a leadership position in a lot of heritage discourses. And also that I think that in order to answer cosmopolitan questions about the construction of heritage narratives and practices, you have to remain in one of these territories that is very openly in conversation between the global superstructure and sphere and the very local construction of identity. So the things that we see happening now in Qatar in the last 10 years are happening at a somewhat accelerated pace, um, but are processes that happened elsewhere. So it's a really good way of looking at the way this heritage narrative is being inserted into all of these other um, spheres of practice of, of cultural determination or resistance or expansion, right? 
So it's um, it's is somewhat representative of something that has happened to different degrees in the Arabian Peninsula, but it also isn't. It's somewhat representative of discussions in the Middle East, but it also isn't, right? So because a lot of the historical analysis of Qatar is a place that looks into the Indian Ocean, which connects me to my previous site historically, right? So it's there's a lot happening. Nobody really writes a lot about Qatar except for in the last decade. So it, it feels simultaneously like this uncharted territory, but a territory loaded by the ideas that other disciplines have brought into, into the mix, right? Like political science and history is very present there as an academic debate. Hi, Trini, this is Laurie Kachadorian. I'm in the Department of Near Eastern Studies here at Cornell. And I was intrigued by how you describe your, your, your work in some of your pieces as ethnographic heritage fieldwork. And I'd be so curious to hear more about the ethnographic uh, kind of dimensions of the project and specifically whether the kinds of um, interlocutors, the kinds of colleagues that you speak with on the ground, whether they express sort of frustrations with the apparatus of heritage preservation and conservation that um, either are similar to your own critiques or perhaps divergent. Um, is there amongst the kind of local or local experts or, or local practitioners with whom you, you speak, is there a sense, for instance, that an alternative uh, heritage practice is, is possible, that what you speak of as a kind of situated practice or a vernacular practice that somehow gets out from under the hegemonic constructs of uh, Western heritage norms? Is there a sense that that's possible, desirable. So what do your informants have to say about both the limits and the prospects for working within and outside these um, international uh, norms and conventions? Thank you, Laurie. You just reminded me that I didn't fully answer Ben's question. So if I may just make a link there. Um, I wore very different hats and sometimes at the same time in Qatar, right? Being, being a, a lecturer, you know, assistant professor in a university that was emerging and trying to insert the heritage discourse through the educational model. And at the same time, um, working on the ground through grants on specific projects that had to do with me being the outsider, right? So it was always a bit of a weird insider outsider um, point of contact. And I think I mentioned in one of the pieces you guys read that I, 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 I wasn't, I didn't plan to have this role where I'm pivoting simultaneously as sort of local vision just because I'm there, because I'm, I'm residing physically and, and, and intellectually residing there, but I'm also very much somebody who's, who's not from there, right? So um, that really, to me, marked my experience of exactly what it is that we're doing ethnographically. I am very skeptical of our ability with our current methods um, to capture this idea of the pure locality in the, in the formation of knowledge. And I think you can read that in the either um, very art articulated in my work or like kind of the subtext of my work, right? And this is not to demerit the efforts that a place like Qatar is putting towards generating a local discourse, but I just think that the discourse is so incredibly loaded with these um, the baggage of the Western or ex-Western constructs of heritage that is very hard to open up a space and to see what grows in that space, right? And the reason why it's very hard um, and why I, I, I seek to complicate locality is that on one hand to look at a region and say, 
oh, I think there's something local there that's not Western, is a very Orientalist construct, right? As an analytical construct, because it's making assumptions about difference in this peripheral territory that are based on almost like a hunch, almost on the idea that there must be something pre-existing, right? And, and you, there's ways in which you can trace other histories and identify pre-existing modes of thinking, like the, the, the WAC um, articulation of preservation of heritage. But at the end of the day, it's a very tricky way of looking at something, right? Because, because you're really forcing some, a process that you have seen happen elsewhere. So one of my big inspirations was the way that heritage discourse um, clashed with certain Buddhist territories, right? In, in the way that they embrace materiality. So that's really a really big part of the legacy of what I'm trying to bring over to the broad Muslim world. The fact that we have found conflict elsewhere because there was, it, it manifested, but like, is it actually manifesting here and in what ways and what are the indicators and what are the methods through which we can find this manifestation? So um, heritage um, ethnography posits that you can potentially activate that difference by looking at uh, the way that the past is, is mobilized in the present, right? As, as you were mentioning that also your work is interested in. So, um, so it's quite interesting to see how you, you, as a scholar, you're working on multiple levels. You're working at the level in which you're a heritage professional and you're part of an industry that's being constructed. But on the other hand, ethnographically, you try to access ways in which that transmission is ruptured or lost in translation, which I think can only really be done with this more, with an ethnographic sensibility, right? Um, and I feel you had asked me something else about that. Do, do you want to repeat it, the second half of the question? I, I think it was just about um, how to represent the, the voices of your interlocutors. Exactly. So the problem was that I was considered by, out, um, by outsiders to be one of those voices, right? Even though I'm producing the voice with a very exogenous form of knowledge, right? So um, it's, it's a very tricky thing to answer because Nobody would want to say there is no local discourse emerging in Qatar. They put a huge effort, like other states, into constructing that local discourse. And also, that's not just by putting people from the right ethnicity or cultural background in the right positions, but it also has to do with generating these um, points of knowledge creation that respond to, to a more local sensitivity. Now, when your points of knowledge creation are mostly done in these foreign institutions that open satellite campuses, in Qatar, then the question of locality becomes a little bit more complicated because the curriculums, the curricula are being imported from somewhere else, right? So I, I don't know if I would have, I've ever felt confident saying I have captured the local way of doing something. I've captured the way in which different institutions have followed directives that are coming from the state and from their little group of experts that were selected by the state to activate certain principles of heritage preservation. But I, it's been a lot harder to capture the local Qatari professional stakeholder view. A lot of the positions um, within these heritage organizations, I mentioned the um, private engineering office, which is, is more related to the Qatari expertise, but the Qatar Museum's Department of Architectural Conservation, which is a really big stakeholder and producer of these heritage preservation and reuse projects, most of the professionals working there are Egyptian, right? So locality then goes into the scale of the Arab locality, not so much perhaps the Arabian Peninsula locality because that's is still, is still quite 
is still quite new. Hi, Trini. I'm Kelly King O'Brien. I'm a historian and I work in the Knight Institute for Writing in the Disciplines. So my question to you is, what are the local heritage values in Qatar? You mentioned in the 2018 article, adaptive reuse and caring for the future, which I found pretty interesting. The material religion article mentions in 2019 questions whether function or stewardship apply. If so, then what are they so far as you can tell? And how are these values related to arguments over heritage destruction? Thank you. Um, so I don't know if I could synthesize uh, almost like a checklist of values, mostly because I think that my disciplinary outlook on this trains us not to do that, not to do the checklist. But I think that different institutions in Qatar and which may, what makes it very complicated to to articulate a local quote unquote perspective is that different institutions will do things slightly differently. And there are clashes um, in, in the way that different organizations are operating. Some of them are much closer and, and in very strong vocal alignment with their work um, associated with UNESCO and others are very much in alignment with some other processes that need to happen there that have to do with very aggressive reuse that have been widely criticized by those who are aligned with the UNESCO mode of thinking, right? So it's quite, that's why it's been quite hard to find where locality resides because what I find that Qatar does really well is it does that cosmopolitan thing of looking up and looking down and navigating those discourses in, in relative harmony, right? Because these, these sites are coexisting, the heritage landscape across the country, because my research is not just um, relegated to, to the urban center of Doha, but it's, I'm, I'm, I've done quite a lot of surveying of the, um, the rest of the territory to see what happens when there's a really big exodus from the rural um, or, or, or coastal little towns into the city. And it's, it's quite incredible to see the diversity of fates in all of these older heritage sites. Um, and part of the reason why I deal with mosques is because I was trying to find where a, a religious practice may interact in some way, positive or negative, with the idea of preservation. And the problem is mosques also suffer such different fates. Some of them do very well and are reincorporated into like a, com a complete practice of reuse. Others are completely demolished. Others are just in, in disarray. So it, it's become really difficult to figure out well, which, which of those points do I use to generate this uh, interaction between a religious function um, and pre-existing value with the, the, the pillars of preservation, which in the Western sense have traditionally excluded um, the, any practice of, of belief and, and religious tradition. Thank you so much for that. Um, it actually is a nice segue to the question that I was thinking of. And the question that I was thinking of is actually informed by colonial India. And one of the things I'll just, um, summarize just really quickly is that the colonial heritage practices of India in the 19th century as they develop into the 20th century exempt religious buildings from heritage re regimes because some of these religious buildings are still um, uh, being used. Um, let me just introduce myself um, to you and the work that I do. So I'm Dirba Ghosham in the Faculty of History and I work on the Indian subcontinent and South Asia 
And um, I've been thinking basically about a, a heritage studies in India and in particular its impact on post-colonial India and Pakistan. So that's kind of where I enter from. One of the things that's really interesting about the way that you've framed um, the three pieces is that um, in the case of the Indian subcontinent, religious buildings were exempt, were exempt and that made for a kind of interesting um, uh, set of iterations in the post-colonial period, which is that religious buildings, however old, have been subjected to different kinds of management regimes, not necessarily by the state, which by the post-colonial state, which took over the archaeological survey that had been set up by the British regime. And so I guess one of the questions I was really intrigued by, um, because of course India is colonized, I don't know what Qatar's status is as a colony, but one of the things I was very intrigued by was you hold out this possibility of a kind of emergent Islamic heritage regime. And I guess I wonder what that looks like. Um, and I know that you're kind of putting your, I don't know if you can kind of forecast the argument of the book, but I wonder both what it looks like, but I also want wonder what does it mean to build heritage out of religious sites instead of secular sites, right? And, um, and in some sense, in the Indian case, of course, the secular, the choice of secular sites was quite deliberate because it allowed the colonial regime to claim the space of the secular while relegating the space of the religious to local populations, right? Um, and that has had various impacts, which I can tell you about now, but I guess I'm, I'm kind of interested in, you no, know. This is, a, it, this is a great question and it strikes at the core of the first part of, uh, I'm actually first writing a, one of those short book series just to deal with heritage and religion as an encounter because I'm fascinated by it. And I'm also fascinated by how easily people assume those two get along. Um, so I'm trying to create a bit more teaching material that embraces that not just solely from a Qatari perspective, from, but from just who we are as in our discipline. Um, what I've been working on a little bit is the history of the emergence of heritage discourse and how it deploys precisely what you're seeing at the, at, at the end product of, of its application in India. It's a lot easier to establish colonial authority over non-religious sites because then you don't have to, your competition is not a, a deity, right? So um, that, that is really fascinating and I'd love to hear more about what you're working on. Most of the students I'm training right now are South Asianists, even though I'm, I'm not a I'm South Asianist myself, but we work you know, in conjunction with the art historical experts there. The discourse of heritage emerges in a very specific point in time, right? And that's something that a lot of us think has to be examined a lot more closely. So it's not just a matter of saying, oh, it's really Western. We know it's Western, but it's coming out of primarily a French territory, right? Which is where the conversations are happening in a very specific moment that it's been rehashed a million times, post Second World War, sensitivity to the effects of destruction, um, but but I've, I've been trying to pull it back a little bit more and look at in, in, uh, how incredibly secularizing that territory was at that time and it had been for a few hundred years right and then to, in order to explain the way that the conversation unfolds in the late 40s in in the UNESCO directorate and even in the in the organization that predates the um the formation of UNESCO the committee that predates it and a lot of the conversation there is about proposing rationality as the main ontological um, viewpoint through which we're going to construct the idea of culture and the performance of heritage. So it's all about kind of side 
sidelining emotion because that's what gets us into trouble. Um, and then focusing on the um, scientific humanist vision that these specific agents that are forming UNESCO have as part of their own agenda, right? Their own ideology that's being brought in here. So what I'm trying to build as an argument historically and through my archival research with um, these early UNESCO years is that there was actually no place in the construction of heritage discourse to put heritage and belief in it, right? To put that interaction in it so that it's on equal terms or so that there's a healthy dialogue. And when you fast forward in time, we look at the emergence of a strong interest in heritage organizations and scholarship on religion, but only in the early 2000s. There's suddenly an explosion of a concern with um, sites of religious significance in the 2000s, right? And by then the heritage discourse has been in operation for 60 years. So it's quite interesting to see that suddenly re-emerging as something that is try tries to get, get pulled in pretty much like how intangible heritage tries to be inserted into the model of um, world heritage. This, this, gets, this gets piggybacked with it, right? So it's like, oh, it's intangible heritage. Oh, it's multiplicity of values, multivocality, blah, blah, blah. So now, obviously there's a place now, there's almost like a slot for us to put in religion and religion doesn't do that well when you insert it because at its foundational level, the discourse, it's about universality which is not really good to, <laughs> to pull into the particularities of our religious tradition. Um, and it's also about these uh, technocratic, scientific way of thinking about values, no matter what the discourse is enveloped into and how much we try to challenge it through the ethnographic lens, the dominant field of heritage studies still operates along these very scientific discourses of like, you no know, true false, these dichotomies about like, it exists, it doesn't exist it's preserved or it's destroyed, right? Like completely opposing ontologies about that. So um, you're, you're tapping into, I think, what is a very much unresolved part of the heritage universe that I think now is, is a good time to confront. Uh, so my name is Alex Mergold. I teach in architecture school. And uh, I guess my question somewhat follows up on Durbas. Uh, it's about the uh, kind of establishment of colonial heritage regimes in relationship to specifically uh, Islamic religious structures. Uh, and it has to do uh, with um, Central Asia, specifically Uzbekistan. The only reason why I'm asking, I'm, I'm from there. So it's a kind of full disclosure. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I found that uh, from kind of personal experience and from uh, sort of studying the, 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 the area, um, it's kind of an interesting situation there, almost like a kind of a third way uh, scenario where normally uh, the kind of Soviet preservation was basically working against uh, uh, religious structures in principle, specifically the Eastern Orthodox, because in a way it is a kind of uh, former hegemon. But on the other hand, they were very careful uh, about preserving and um, even restoring in their particular way, uh, Islamic religious structures, specifically places like Samarkand, Bukhara, there was a kind of spectacular restoration uh, of the minarets of the Rajasthan in the 50s. So how do you kind of see this sort of strange benevolence towards Islamic religious stru structures, specifically in the Soviet Union, if you, and if you have an opinion about that? Absolutely, I do. Thank you. That's a great question. I um, I think the key here is to examine, although I'm not familiar with those sites, it's to examine the specific discourse of heritage value that is articulated in that preservation, right? So 
some a fun exercise to do with your students is to go through heritage uh, nominate uh, heritage world heritage list nomination files which are all online and then pick uh, a site of religious significance and see how its significance is actually articulated right because often the priority lays on its aesthetic and architectural values and its significance in histories of empire that's a very dominant narrative in the way um, the more art historical, and I mean the, the more old school art historical way of thinking about preservation has a pecking order in its values. Yes, we recognize such multiple values, but there is a hierarchy in those values and the aesthetic beauty, uniqueness, integrity of these sites may have been articulated in a way in which it completely relegates its role in an active religious practice. So sites that have an active religious community around it are the ones that have a conflict with it sometimes because it, the way that it's written into ideas of significance for heritage work often don't come very well into uh, integration with its ongoing practice, which may require changes to its material integrity. It's like the, it's the classic, classic tension that we're, we've recognized now for decades in, in the work of heritage. So, would, if, if you're examining that, I would definitely look at the way in which it's been drawn and incorporated into heritage discourse, because that's a very intentional and discursive act that often involves erasure of some values or downplaying of some values so that it can match the specific heritage assemblage of that nation state. So in the case of, 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 of a Soviet type of um, ideology, which you may say it's pre-existingly um, secularizing, you, you may see that um, more, more aggressively happening where it's like, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's a side of it, but it's actually really beautiful. Look at these bricks and look at the roof, whatever, look at the iconography. Right. You see yeah. like the, not, there's certain nominations in UNESCO that are iconic for this, like the Taj Mahal is quite interestingly all about the history and the, the architectural right. no, I, just to follow up i mean the interesting thing i mean they you know the the, the soviets right had no qualms about destroying churches these eastern Orthodox churches where you know one would argue of sort of equal beauty yet somehow the kind of the, the the islamic structures which probably were not seen as part of this kind of former uh sort of hegemonic religion were like oh you know we can we can preserve those no, Alex, you've said it. I think it's about whether something is coming into conflict with the authorizing agency that's supporting its preservation, right? There's some things are harmless and some things are not harmless. And it's about keeping the particularity of the life histories of those monuments. So if the site means um, means a form of resistance to, to, a, to a regime, then I think you're going to see a lot more conflict and the potential for destruction than if you don't. And I would love specialists in Armenia to pitching here but I know it's it's about my work but um but it's something that we see repeated over and over and over there's no there's no cookie cutter approach even within states there's a way in which um in which the regime finds the thing that allows them to construct the regime that they want to construct without much fuss and I think at the end of the day it comes down to whether there is a community that is using those symbols to establish themselves or protect themselves or form some form of resistance. This is Adam again. I think I want to sort of pull on something of the same thread that uh, Durba and Alex have already been pulling on. In particular, I want to go to your, uh, I think it's the Journal of Arabian Studies uh, article, where you're, you're worrying the relationship between Islamic heritage and sacrality. 
And there's one uh, line in the text where you talk about how extraordinarily difficult it is to extract a sense of Islamic heritage from the sacred. And I wanted to ask you about some of the implications of that, because in some ways, the point of that you're critical of the representation of Islam's relationship to heritage vi viewed largely through the lens of ISIS is the view where it's a highly orientalizing view, of course, but one where it's a doctrinal one, right? There's a kind of dogma that demands a kind of heritage destruction and the dogma is inseparable from the act of heritage uh, 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 iconoclasm. So I, I wonder to what degree does the creation of some space between Islam and the uh, Islamic heritage and the pure domain of the sacred actually push hard, push back against that kind of ISIS-izing of Islam's relationship to heritage? I mean, I know you've thought about this, so I wanted to just get a sense of that relationship between Islamic heritage and the sacred that you're developing there. Yeah, absolutely. And I, um, because of my particular, my particular ideology and how I think of the work that I do, um, I mean, scholarly ideology, right? I, to me, to me, the, the production of material culture and, and unculture in general that mobilizes an idea of the Islamic broadly con constructed is not relegated to the golden era of Islam. So normally Islamic heritage is talking about an art historical construction that responds to a particular periodicity and it has, it has an, an end date of production, right? Whereas anthropologists are looking at contemporary production of art in Indonesia in the year 2010 as Islamic art and how that is confronted with ideas of the Islamic. So we're having various discourses of what is legitimately an authoritative, quote unquote, Islamic, um, body of cultural manifestations, right, and practices. And that's confronted by the fact that Islamic is not a monolithic category. So um, I'm, not, I'm not an Islamicist, but I rely extensively on what contemporary scholars in religious studies are saying about maintaining the spectrum of ways in which um, Muslim communities conceptualize of time, right? Because as you say, the discourse has been largely revolving these textual interpretations that these specific groups of perpetrators are generating about Islam. And it's amazing how easily that got replicated and how it entered the public sphere through journalism or, 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 or heritage organizations themselves, which are, I think, in large part responsible for perpetuating these biases in many ways. So, um, so I do, I think as an anthropologist, I look at the way people mobilize sacrality in a very situated way. So in a way it, it matters less to me if they're following a textual tradition than, than if they're just practicing things in a very specific way, right? So um, I, I, I'm, I'm a, a big proponent of separating the idea of like, this is what the text says and this is what people are actually practicing. And the way people are practicing heritage preservation or utilizing, enjoying, consuming heritage, they're not doing it by following a manual for the most part. But when I talk about this and the audience is more of an Islamicist um, expert audience, I have to deal with a confrontation of like, no, but the text says, and I'm like, no, but the practice says, like people are very complicated and societies are very complicated and truth is constructed and authority is constructed in very specific local ways at different times in history, right? So what we're seeing now in Qatar would have not been 
the same conversation we could entertain um, maybe 30 years ago. So, um, so yeah, so that's why that's why I keep saying these are different these are different forms of knowledge, and they would construct very different ideas of value because anthropology has only really come into this heritage ethnography thing and looking at looking at the distinction between the text and the practice. Can I just quickly follow up with uh, yeah. one question that sort of on the margins of this? Maybe in the specific ethnographics that you're working in, or more generally in the Islamic world, what do we make of non-Muslim heritage? So the heritage of minority communities within this vast uh, heterogeneous Muslim world, and how does that get taken into a sense of Islamic heritage? And, and that's a very different sense of the sacred as well. So how do we accommodate to create that space for those uh, minority viewpoints, and either specifically in Qatar or somewhere else in the world. Yeah, Qatar is not a great place to look at that, but um, but I think that the cases where it has been studied, um, places like, I have the book under my computer, like uh, Karen Barkey's choreographies of um, shared sacred sites and, and people that are working more on difference and sharing um, will tell you there's huge diversity in the way different societies um, are able to support, even protect, um, the heritage of um, other minorities, like the work of Anna Bigelow, wrote this amazing ethnography called Sharing the Sacred that takes place in North India. And it's mind-blowing to see the absolute lack of conflict that revolves around that particular site in, in a very material sense, but also in a community sense. So the really great thing about those case studies is that it, again, just like heritage discourse has um, suffered a lot of the discourse has revolved around conflict, like very serious conflict, destruction, you know, like those kind of zeitgeist that have given shape to the entire discipline of heritage preservation. Whereas now with uh, coming in at it from um, an ethnographic sensibility, you see that there's actually quite a lot of sharing and, and co-hosting and support defending. The really great document to look about this when it comes to Islam, a sort of Islamic perspective, if one could say that, is this uh, Doha statement that was produced right after the destruction of the Taliban, um, um, the, the Taliban's destruction of the Bani and Buddhas. And there's like this whole statement, which is incredibly powerful and also somewhat underused in, in the way people think about the way Islam in particular relates to other uh, to the remnants or or contemporary structures of other faiths and it's i am my the, my cynical uh, self and my training and what i've experienced so far after all these years in different places of the muslim world is that there's there's just it's it's really hard to work against the bias that has established this characterization of the broad middle east or muslim world as destructive but there's plenty of examples of coexistence. There's plenty of examples of support. Uh, it's just really, really hard because that's not, I, I feel some of you are nodding. That's not what gets funded. That's not the sexy story. Nobody wants to hear about this peaceful community doing very well. Uh, it's really hard. Heritage organizations can't really do fundraising effectively if they say the world is not burning. So. I think a lot of us coming from this ethnographic perspective are quite concerned about this, this mountain that we're having to confront. And it happens in particular when you're trying to teach this subject. Um, and a lot of the 
world that I produce, which I find quite repetitive, and I'm sure you guys are being very nice, I'm not pointing that out, but I think it's about kind of continuing to echo that message that there's like a whole other way of looking at heritage preservation that is not stuck to these dichotomous thinking. Hi, this is Laurie again, and I think where you just left off might be a, a good sort of segue into what I wanted to ask about, which broadens out a little bit. Um, and, and asks a question of you as someone who's sort of really at the center of critical heritage studies debates. Um, do you think there is um, a space on the other side of critical heritage studies? So what, what comes after the deconstructive work of a critical approach to heritage? What kind of you know, sort of vision or mode of heritage practice might there be that can be um, that can uplift, that can empower, that can be a source of perhaps even resistance. I mean, so where do we go after we're done deconstructing, um, after we're done critiquing um, the, the mistakes of the past, the entrenched hegemonies of the past? And maybe where you ended on coexistence and support in, these, in the Doha statement and these other um, you know, spaces is, is wherein an answer might lie. But even just as a, on a disciplinary level, I'm wondering um, what does, critical heritage studies do productively after its critique by way of a vision? Thanks, Larry. I, I can tell you I'm an archeologist and, <laughs> and it's, it's a question that has also plagued us in terms of kind of in the post-processual turn of archeology, span like what about, you know, if everything's relative and if everything's ricocheted into multiple meanings then what is there there, right? And what's our contribution? The, um, the initial impetus in the critical heritage turn was about recognizing that there was another point of view that wasn't the western hegemonic view and that and we could write that out for a little bit and then what you see after that was you know Olera Jane Smith writes about the AHD the authorized heritage discourse and everyone's like yes that 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 and so everyone kind of starts to look at this anti-AHD forms of practice and discourse and policy and whatnot in different countries unfortunately what that creates is a, a very polarized type of planet where there's like some line in the middle which is an interesting uh, intellectual artifact, right? Because it helps me think about, well, where in that line is um, the Arabian Peninsula, right? So for, as a, as a, to put it in suspense for a moment, it's useful. But what it did is it generated like a whole body of literature for the last 20 years or so, uh, which is just about filling in that non-Western territory as a kind of mosaic without trying to incorporate it into a broader narrative. The problem is a lot of the, I think, um, interest in that work was to create this anti-Western resistance, right? Almost, almost as, a, as, as a retaining wall. And what has been lost, not that it's not in that literature, but what has been lost in the categorization of the field is the fact that what these people, a lot of these scholars are doing is generating this very situated knowledge about about the way heritage is constructed that doesn't necessarily need to, or and it should not be incorporated into a broader anti-Western narrative. In particular, because there's a lot of hybridity. So once you look at things more from, from this very contemporary ethnographic per perspective, you see the hybridity and you see the inconsistencies within heritage thinking. So you can't say you're an ethnographic or, or that you support a topic or a, a line of study ethnographically if you're then going to make a choice between the, um, um, the significance of antiquity and the significance of the contemporary. If at any point you hierarchize those, then you're just not doing your job, right? 
because there's a kind of a temporal focus, ideological hybridity in the way a lot of these nations do this because they have agency, right? And so that that's what I'm trying to kind of push forward in my work in the Arabian Peninsula that there, I don't feel that my colleagues there feel that they have to pick one or the other so that they can be coherent in this cartography of um, you know, East and West. The East and West had a purpose and now it needs to be completely disarmed. But the generation of alternatives is already there. And that's what ethnography has generated. The thing is, it's just much harder to track as a debate that one can package very easily into an non-Western perspective. And it doesn't do any good to the debate itself to package it as a non-Western perspective. And so we haven't found a way of, you see when a lot of us are writing, it's like quotation marks everywhere because it's such an uncomfortable thing to say. It's so oppressive. It's so oppressive to generate knowledge in response to the West. But it's so difficult to not recognize that there's a Western tradition um, like, like Durba was saying, the archaeological survey of India selected what was heritage, right? So you can't completely eliminate the colonial trajectories, but, um, but I think that you can make an effort to recognize that you can build both stories and at some point they meet and they meet at your ethnographic work, unsurprisingly, right? And then you're the one navigating this very temporarily bound moment of heritage meaning making. I wonder, um, this is Ben again, um, if I could pursue this question a little bit further about the non-Western and the Western and specifically in the context of Islam and heritage. I mean, you've expressed uh, Trinidad a certain uh, skepticism about the possibility of recovering something before um, the heritage discourse from the materials that we have from the Islamic world. But I mean, there is, and you've also gestured in this direction um, in emphasizing the urgency of uh, sort of publicizing cohabitation and um, uh, sort of um, non-destructive Islamic attitudes towards heritage. Um, there's a very long tradition of adab, of uh, belles lettres in Arabic in particular, having to do with pre-Islamic jahiliya um, monuments, going back to medieval texts like Masaudi about the pyramids, um, other uh, authors of the medieval period who describe pre-Islamic uh, monuments in some detail. So I wonder, given that that exists, is there a way in which it is mobilized today in contemporary uh, Islamic states, in discourses about pre-Islamic heritage? In other words, is that tradition, given that it's a resource that's kind of available to all of us to do as we want with and construct as non-Western or Western or neither, or who cares, um, is there a, a room for constructing a much longer tradition of Islamic engagement with pre-Islamic monuments? Absolutely, great question. There is room and I'm, other people are doing it. So um, I think that's, that falls firmly in the um, domain of, of, of religious studies experts that I use quite a lot in my work. Um, but for example, there's, I wrote this volume, The Making of Islamic Heritage, and the purpose of it was to bring all these different disciplinary experts that talk about the way that we can complicate the idea of the making of the idea of Islam and heritage in conjunction. So there's a great chapter by Michael Siener, um, who's a Southeast Asianist, but he works on Muslim communities and he, he revisits precisely the very positive embrace of pre-Islamic monuments that is also part of the classic narratives, but often, oops, you guys there? 
healthcare often doesn't get um, drawn into the debate again because it's not a sexy debate. And then Shafat Bashir has written a lot about disrupting the the negative moral dimension that Jahiliya gets pulled into. Right? Yes, there's a pre-Islamic time, but it's actually time works in much more complicated ways than it had previously been oversimplified in, in, in you know in archaeological thinking, perhaps. So the um, there's there's a lot of hybridity there as well. So when you look at the work of uh, the way that heritage or, or the built landscape, whether it's in, involved in heritage debates or not, in Indonesia operates, it's it's very, with apologies to religious studies experts, it's very syncretic, right? There's, there's quite a lot of um, points of view around the built landscape that don't necessarily need to be pulled into one or the other and are not necessarily practiced differently from one type of site to the other type of site. So yes, there is there's an emerging conversation. I think those of us who are trying to work on this revamping of looking at the Islamic through the lens of heritage are trying to make sure we're bringing in those experts that have these really great narratives to the table, right? Like Jamal Elias from Penn, uh, obviously Shafat Bashir who's now at Brown, who used to be here. They, those are really great readings to draw into, into our classes to complicate this idea of time and how it gives different moral authority to things. This is Adam again, and I want to uh, say that sadly, we're going to have to bring this discussion to a close. Uh, we've had a terrific time engaging with your work. It's been very illuminating. And I wanna encourage those of you listening to uh, find uh, either the works that we've been discussing here today or Trinidad's uh, uh, previous book as well on uh, that uh, tends to climate as well as the questions and problems of heritage, very timely. Trinidad, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for your great questions.